Just four verses, but filled with passion and great help. A song of ascents, Psalm 123 reads, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Father, this is your word. It's been said that the Psalms are in an anatomy of the soul. And what varied experiences we see. Lord, not all of us in this room are in the same place. But your word is sufficient to speak to all of us today. By your spirit, we pray you'd speak. We pray you'd teach us your word. We pray you'd shape us into your ways. We pray we would see our need for mercy more than we ever have. And we would cling to a savior who is merciful. We thank you for him, and we meet together in his name today. Amen. You could be seated. Well, as I said, it's been said that the Psalms have been called in anatomy of the soul. And what a difference we find between this Psalm, Psalm 123, and the ones from the last couple of weeks, Psalm 121, which we read earlier in our service, and Psalm 122, which we studied together last week. They're different. And it might be confusing for you to see that they're different because I have said before that there's a progression in these Psalms of ascents, these 15 Psalms from 120 to 134. I've said there's a progression because they were used by Jewish pilgrims who would make their way to Jerusalem three times a year for feast and for sacrifice, singing these along the way. And in Psalm 120, there is a man who is in a foreign land and he's rather sick of it. But by the time you get to 134, there's a man there who's in the temple and he's blessing the priests who stand in the house of the Lord. There's a progression, yes, but it's not quite as simple as that, as we can tell. Psalm 122 last week was as good as it gets. It's as high and lofty and celebratory of any of the 15 Psalms. Remember from last week, he's as good as there, if not there, standing within Jerusalem's gates. It's a high point, but Psalm 123 is not a high point. It would seem as though these pilgrims have thrown the emergency brake on and slammed it into reverse. And we, the readers, if we're expecting progression, find a little bit of whiplash. Well, it might help you to know and to observe for yourself on your own later that there are actually five cycles of three psalms making up these 15 psalms. There is a general progression, yes, but with every third psalm, we reach a high point. And then often, the next one sort of recalibrates, resets expectations, 
brings us back to earth because we're still on the way. We're still traveling through. As for the literary structure of Psalm 123, there are really just two parts to it. There's the statement about the posture of the psalmist in verses 1 and 2. He's looking to the Lord. And then he's pleading for mercy in verses 3 and 4. But within that plea in verses 3 and 4, we finally learn of the problem he's dealing with. What is the problem that causes him to have this posture of looking to the Lord and, and to plead with the Lord for mercy? Well, let's start there. Let's start with the third point, the problem of scorn. We'll go back to the beginning in just a bit. And we'll work our way back down to see how his response to the problem leads to a certain posture and, and certain pleas before the Lord. But the problem he starts with, it, no, concludes with, but obviously logically and chronologically led him to pray, is the problem of scorn. You see in the end of verse 3, we've had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Contempt. That might be a word that we hear from time to time, but might struggle to write out a definition on our own. To show contempt or to receive contempt is to be considered worthless and treated as such. It is to be dishonored and despised. Contempt can include maligning and misrepresenting and mocking, taunts, jeers, or even pressure. Scorn is ridicule. It's to be made fun of. It's to be rejected. All this stuff can be as simple as the condescension towards Christians that we sometimes read in an editorial piece in a liberal newspaper, or what you might hear from an entertainer who's not only not interested in Christianity, but quite angry about it. It might come in the form of a professor at a secular college who just can't get off this hobby horse of how stupid the Bible is. Or maybe you have an unbelieving spouse who even after years continues to mock your faith and your beliefs and even try to hinder you from practicing what God's called you to do. Some of us face contempt or scorn at the water cooler at work when we don't laugh at a dirty joke. Or maybe your views of God and supernatural things stand out like a sore thumb in the science or medical community in which you work. Maybe you've missed games for your kids' sports if they fell on Sunday morning. More and more in this country, scorn will involve legislation and punishments for Christians not doing evil things. More and more, our biblical convictions will be labeled hate and bigotry. And more and more, we'll be dismissed as idiots who still believe the earth is flat. The contempt and scorn of the Bible in that of Psalm 23 is that which we face because of God in our identification with him. It's when the world doesn't get us or doesn't like us because of our faith. 
It has nothing to do with opposition that we might face when we're in the wrong, when we're angry, when we're mean, when we're difficult, when we're lying or deceptive. Now, 1 Peter talks about all that. He says, don't suffer as an evildoer. Don't confuse persecution and the pain that's caused because you're a jerk. That's not persecution. Psalm 123 is talking about persecution for righteousness sake. In the Old Testament, Israel was often scorned by the nations around her. Those idol-filled nations mocked the religion of the Jews with this invisible God and a singular one at that. The early Christian church was rumored to practice cannibalism because of a misunderstanding by the world of what is happening with the Lord's Supper. They were maligned as atheists because, again, their God was invisible. They were misrepresented as insurrectionists. They were blamed for the great fire of Rome, which we know Nero started. But those early Christians also had, in the midst of the suffering, even through the suffering, a profound effect for God's glory and for the gospel's sake. They were famous for their care for the dead, whether their own or just in their neighborhood. And God used their salt and light And God used their words and the gospel spread. And again, despite the the persecution and the suffering, thousands and thousands and thousands joined in on identifying with Jesus and worshiping him through faith. So it works both ways, doesn't it? In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says that we're in aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one were a fragrance from death to death, to other a fragrance from life to life. Christians are to have an aroma about them, and that will lead to life for some, but it will lead to a repugnant reaction from others. Christians are called to be different than the world around them. We have an otherworldly message. We have a Savior that was crucified, and we celebrate it. We have an otherworldly ethic that Jesus taught us. We are seen as upside down by a world that is upside down. And Jesus told his first disciples this would be the case. In John 15, he said, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. As Paul told young Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not all the same amount, not death for everyone. I think it's still true today. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will. They will draw some enemy fire. So I wonder, are you living in such a way these days that you occasionally draw some enemy fire? I don't mean death threats, though that could come. But I mean, is there any opposition? Do you have anyone around you that rolls their eyes 
that pokes fun. Maybe that's the first way that Psalm 123 challenges us by what it assumes. This man assumes that identification with the living God will result in scorn and contempt from a world around that's rejected him. Have you ever lost anything because of Christ? Has anyone ever made fun of your faith? Does anyone around you other than in this room and of this church know that you're a Christian? What an important psalm this is for teenagers and for college students too, I suppose. Our teens and college students, they face an inordinate amount and kind of scorn and ridicule and bullying and peer pressure. That's easy to forget when you've been off the playground for a number of years, but we need to pray for our kids and the pressure that is put upon them. And kids, if there are any in here, Psalm 123 is a psalm for you. This guy acknowledged the scorn. He acknowledged to God that it was painful. In fact, he does so with brutal honesty. Did you notice that? Verse 3, we... We've had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough. This is what we call lament in the Bible. Lament or mourning psalms. Honestly mourn before the Lord and to the Lord about the way things are, and they call on him for help. Many of the lament psalms have a, a movement to them. They have layers to them. They, they might start with lament or what is sometimes called complaint, but it's a holy complaint, not accusation to the Lord. But they move past it usually into remembrance about the Lord and what he's done and what he said and how he's delivered in the past. They, they move on to preach to self often. You know this. You know this to be true. They testify of the Lord's deliverance in the past. They state their confidence about the Lord's goodness in the future. And often they end with praise. Psalm 120 is a lament that really only has lament. It is raw lament. It never moves past lament. So that's there. That's real. That can happen. We can pray those kind of prayers. But they're rare. There's supposed to be movement. There's supposed to be more than lament. And Psalm 123 doesn't have all the elements that are in the best lament or most full lament psalms, but it does have petition. It does have praise. It does have resolve. Even while he's brutally honest with more than enough of contempt. Literally, he's saturated with contempt and scorn. He's filled up to the brim in his life and soul. Now we can say, knowing other parts of the Bible, it only feels like it's more than enough. We know God doesn't give us more than we can bear. He doesn't tempt us beyond, beyond our ability. We know that God decides how much is too much. We know from 2 Corinthians 1 that God gives more than enough comfort in the midst of our trials. It doesn't feel like it's more than enough. It doesn't feel like it's enough. But he has purposes in that too. He has purposes in what feels like we're on the brink. 
or hanging on by a thread. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Why would God let us have all that hardship? Well, so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that it would be clear that the treasure of the gospel has been put in these jars of clay, fragile, earthly bodies. Remember that Psalm 123 is a pilgrim's psalm. A psalm of ascent. It's a song for those who are journeying home. So it's a psalm that reminds us that we're not home yet. This world is not our home. We are going to God. And we are of another world. We are strangers and pilgrims. Even aliens, says 1 Peter. And the scorn of the world can remind us of that. The scorn of the world can help prepare us for where we're going. It can even make us long for going there even more. Until we're home, we will face scorn and contempt. And when we do, we go to God with it. We look up. So now back up to the beginning of our psalm. Secondly, let's consider the posture of looking up. To you I lift up my eyes, O oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. There's this emphasis on eyes and looking in the psalm. Four times the word eyes is found. Twice we see the word look. It's about perspective. It's about the psalmist's attitude to the Lord and his posture before the Lord. He gives an illustration in verse 2. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master... So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Now servants and masters or maidservants and mistresses is language that might give us pause. In Bible times, whether Old Testament or New Testament, this imagery would not have caused them to hiccup like it might us today. We think maybe this is an endorsement of slavery, and it's not. It's not least the kind of slavery of owning people as property based on color. Try to imagine with those of Bible times that there is such a thing historically as a sweet, healthy servant, master, and servant relationship. Think of a Think of a servant in the palace of King David. That would be a happy servant, and that would be a good and kind master. So this illustration in verse 2 communicates that we're God's servants. We're needy. We're dependent. We're submissive. And God is a good master. He provides. He protects. He guides. He helps. He shows kindness. But he is the boss. It doesn't say we're roommates. We're the servants. He's the master. 
Our eyes are on him to see what he'll do, to see what he'll give and when he'll give it, to see how he directs and where we should go. At home, we have a, an English bulldog named Rosie. Bulldogs love food. They love to eat, pass gas, and sleep. That's what bulldogs do. Whenever Sarah is in the kitchen making some food, often if she's cutting up some meat, Rosie will be right by her side, sitting patiently and looking up with this fixed gaze, watching every movement to see what it might indicate. Because sometimes Sarah gives her a little bit, a, a scrap. Not all the time, but sometimes. And Rosie is going looking for it every time. She's watching each movement of Sarah's body. She's listening to each inflection in her voice, wondering what each might mean about whether she's getting meat or not. Her eyes are on her master. And why shouldn't they be? She has a good master and she's a desperate dog. <laughs> she has a master that won't give her more rich food than she can handle, even though she'd eat it. She has a master who knows better than the bulldog, the bulldog with a stomach bigger than its brain. Who's our master? Who's our master? Look at verse 1. I lift my eyes to you. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Our God is this world's king. He reigns. He's enthroned above all other thrones. He reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. Think of what Nebuchadnezzar confessed in Daniel 4. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or hold back his hand. And none can say, what have you done? Remember Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God in chapter 6? He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when they said this, the, the room, the building, the walls shook and trembled. You know about Ezekiel's vision of God's throne? Ezekiel 1, he saw a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire. I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. That's something of what this psalmist has in mind when he says, I look to you who are enthroned in heaven. This is our God. He reigns over everything. He's under complete control. 
He controls even the scorners and their scorn. Not one of your hairs will fall from your head apart from your father's will. No sparrow falls from its nest dead apart from the father's will. How much more precious are you? And so our eyes must be on him, the king. Our eyes must be on him, not on the scorners, and not rehearsing for ourselves their scorn. His eyes were on this king because most likely there was nowhere else to look for help. That's true for any of us, no matter how much support we may at times feel like we have, no matter how much good advice we could possibly get. Really, he's the Lord and there's none besides him, even as it pertains to him being our help. Oprah can't help with this thing of dealing with this world's scorn. Dr. Phil can't fix it. Stephen Covey can't carve out a path for us that will keep us from suffering and persecution and scorn in this world. And so we look up. We don't look up with physical eyes into the clouds or even through the clouds. We, we look up to him like a metaphor. We look to his word. We look to him in prayer. We, we direct our attention towards him. We look up to him in song and in worship. So look up with resolve. I lift my eyes. That doesn't happen automatically. Our eyes will not by themselves look upward to the Lord. Don't you feel that? You feel the pull, the pull, the eyes are, they want to go everywhere and anywhere but on the Lord. And so we must determine to look to the Lord. It's personal. I lift up my eyes. You can't do it for me. I can't do it for you. Parents can't do it for their kids. Individually, we must say, I lift up my eyes. And we must look up humbly. We're the servant and he's the master we, we must look up worshipfully because he's not just a master, but he's our God and the, the creator and the king. We look up to him with full dependence upon him, confessing our great need for him. I love 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a great half of a verse to memorize. What a great thing to confess to him almost no matter the situation. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Look up to him continually, undistractedly, singularly. Look up to him submissively, with eyes on him, ready to do his will, ready to receive his word. Look up to him with familiarity, because he's your master. He's the Lord, our God. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be put to shame. Look to him because you know who he is and what he's like. You've received from his hand countless times, no matter how great the storm around you is. What's come from his hand sometimes stings, but it is always good. He has never backhanded us in the midst of our suffering nor will he ever. When we can't see his hand, 
We trust his heart, as a modern Christian song goes, or as an old hymn goes, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Look up to him expectantly. Look up to him as you wait on him. Our eyes look to the Lord till he has mercy upon us. That's what it says, till he has mercy upon us. What a great word this is, till. Till means that we wait. Till means we don't know when he'll act. We don't know what he'll do other than he will show mercy. Till means that he will show mercy. It doesn't say if he has mercy upon us, but till. What great faith. What great humility in that little word till. Martin Luther talked about God's delays to our prayers like this. When he defers his help, he does it not because he will not hear us, but to exercise and stir up our faith and to teach us the ways whereby we can, or he can and does deliver us so manifold and miraculous that we are never able to conceive them. Therefore, let us think that the thing which we ask is not denied but deferred and assure ourselves that we're not neglected because of this delay. Till, what's your posture toward the Lord? How would you describe it? Here's an idea. Look to him. And third, there's the plea for mercy. Plead with him. Till he has mercy upon us, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Now, before we dig into that, let's make some simple observations about Psalm 123. Did you notice that Psalm 123 is a short prayer? Just four verses. That's a good reminder that we can pray short prayers. Some of the best prayers in all the Bible are very short. Son of David, have mercy upon me. The tax collector said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Nehemiah wanted to go build a wall and he approached the governor to do so. The governor said, what do you want? It says, and he prayed to the Lord and answered him. He answered the governor but there must have been some sort of quick popcorn prayer, I think is what Spurgeon calls them. A quick prayer before he answered. Short prayers can be good. Notice that in Psalm 123, there's a bit of repetition. Have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes that's all we can muster up. A sentence or two, and we keep repeating it to the Lord not out of empty rote repetition, but out of genuine passion and coming from real, mind-numbing grief. Notice that the request to have mercy is a very general thing to ask for. Have mercy. Why does he pray such a general thing? He doesn't say make them stop. He, he doesn't say kill them. He doesn't say, shut their mouths. He says, have mercy upon me. 
Did you know it takes faith to pray general requests like have mercy upon me or your will be done and not mine or your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Those are huge requests and they're very general. Why does it take faith to pray those? Because it leaves God to fill in the specifics. It's emphasizing what he's promised to do and letting him take care of the details or the timing. Eugene Peterson writes about this psalm this way. Too often we think of religion as a far off, mysteriously run bureaucracy to which we apply for assistance when we feel the need. We go to a local branch office and direct a clerk, sometimes called a pastor, to fill out our order for God. Then we go home and wait for God to be delivered to us according to the specifications that we've set down. But that's not the way it works. If God is God at all, he must know more about our needs than we do. If God is God at all, he must be more in touch with the reality of our thoughts and our emotions and our bodies than we are. If God is God at all, he must have a more comprehensive grasp of the interrelationships in our families and communities and nations than we do. He's the king enthroned in heaven. So we ask God for mercy, believing that he knows best when and how to bring about that mercy. And we ask for mercy as people, at least as Christians, We've already been shown mercy. We already know mercy. He saved us, not because of works of righteousness, what we did, but by his great mercy. It's according to his great mercy that he's, a, he's caused us to be born again unto a living hope. You once didn't receive mercy, but now you've received mercy. You see, in Jesus, there is abundant mercy. Mercy that saves and saves to the end and mercy that is ongoing and helps us get through. Again, Eugene Peterson nails it. This prayer is not an attempt to get God to do what he's unwilling otherwise to do, but a reaching out to what we know that he does do an expressed longing to receive what God is doing in and for us in Jesus Christ. In obedience, we pray mercy instead of give us what we want. We pray mercy and not reward us for our goodness so our neighbors will acknowledge our superiority. We pray mercy and not punish us for our badness so that we will feel better. We pray mercy and not be nice to us because we've been such good people. God has shown us mercy just look to the cross. Look to that cruel, torturous cross as an emblem for how bad sin is, how bad the problem is. And look to the cross as the salvation, the payment that was made for us and for our sins. When Jesus died on that cross, he was not simply giving us an example of turning the other cheek or showing us a model of humility. It's that, but infinitely more. He was bearing the sins of a people no man can number. He was bearing the payment before God. 
Do you believe that? I pray you do. I pray you know him. Do you see your need for him? Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you said you were a Christian at some point in your life, but life has taken you down a different path. You're not even sure what that means anymore. I wonder, do you feel the need to cry out to God, have mercy upon me? Because that's step one, is knowing the need, seeing how great the need is. But then look to Jesus and say, have mercy upon me. You should know that Christians keep looking at Jesus. We keep beholding him. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, in the time we have left, let's do that. Let's look to Jesus. Let's consider him who endured such hostility from sinners that he made. Would you turn with me to Mark 15? We're going to obey the command of Hebrews 12, verse 3, to consider him so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. To look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. To see what he endured. To try to understand what it means that he despised the shame Mark 15, the scene of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. Verses 16 to 20, the soldiers mock Jesus with a a coronation, a mock coronation. 600 soldiers or so gathered around Jesus for a hazing and a bullying and a beating that would have caused the worst bullies of the world to blush. Verse 17, they put a purple cloak on him, a crown of thorns on his head. Verse 18, they were saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 19, they were striking his head and spitting upon him. They were kneeling down in feigned homage to him. Verse 20, they mocked him. They stripped the purple cloak off of him, de-kinging him, it would seem. And then they led him out to be crucified, to be nailed upon that tree, to hang there and suffer for hours before he suffocated in death. Before it got to that, they stripped his clothes off of him. They gambled for his garments in verse 24. The inscription over the cross mocked him as the king of the Jews. In verse 29, passers-by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, save yourself and come down from the cross. Religious leaders then joined in with their sneers. Verse 31, he saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But he actually stayed on that cross so that we would believe. He saved others 
by not saving himself, but giving himself over to death. Here is the founder and the finisher of our faith. He endured the cross and he despised the shame. What's that mean? Have you ever given much thought to that phrase in Hebrews 12 that Jesus despised the shame? I think for most of my Christian life, I just assumed that meant that the shame of the cross was really, really bad and Jesus really, really didn't like it, but he knew what was on the other side and so with joy he went through it. But that's not actually what it means. When it says that Jesus despised the shame, it means he dismissed the shame. It had no deterring effect on him. Oh, we can talk about how bad the shame was, that's for another message. But Hebrews 12 says something unique. He despised the shame. He mocked the mockers. He sneered at their sneers. It had no effect on his mission. He was bearing shame and scoffing rude. It was in my place condemned. He stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Consider him. Look at what he endured from sinners. Think about what it did. Believe it, embrace it, receive mercy, and follow him all your days. That's Christianity. We keep looking to him, and we keep trying to persevere so that we don't grow weary and faint-hearted. But we don't not grow weary and faint-hearted simply by, well, trying to press on or pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or just keeping our nose clean, we look at him and we keep looking at him. So Christian, where are your eyes these days? What are you looking at these days? What are you beholding? Have you forgotten that Christians are supposed to behold Christ and in the process be changed in the same image we behold from one degree of glory to another? What are you setting your mind on? If you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Seek Christ and where he's seated. To you, I lift up my eyes. To the God enthroned in heaven. As servants look to the hand of their master, so our eyes look to the Lord God till he has mercy upon us. Not if, till. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Have mercy upon us. He has shown mercy. He will show mercy. The problem of being scorned may not be your biggest problem today. What's your problem? What's your biggest dilemma and greatest difficulty right now? I don't think it would be inappropriate for you to lean upon Psalm 123 using your problem as the reason to look up to him and to pray to him. Take whatever problem you have this morning and lift your eyes to him. Tell him about your problem with all the honesty that you want to, even if it feels like it's more than enough. Tell him and believe that it's not more than enough because this isn't the only passage in the Bible. Ask him for mercy. You don't know how he'll show mercy. But if he's shown you eternal saving mercy, 
You can trust that he'll be good tomorrow and the next day. And even in the hurt, he shows mercy. Perhaps he'll show mercy by removing the problem or the person or the difficulty, the trial, the sickness. Or perhaps he'll show mercy by shepherding you through the problem, the trial, the conflict. By giving you grace to endure it. It seems to me that's more common. We pray, Lord, have mercy. And somehow we get through it. Somehow we come out the other side, not only still believing, but seeing ourselves more clearly. Seeing him more clearly. Having received something good from his hand, even in the midst of so much hurt. God will use the contempt and scorn or the trial or difficulty in this life to encourage us about our identification with him. He'll use the trials of this world to show to us once again that we're not of this world and we're going to a different world and we're going to God. Let's pray for his help now. Oh, Father, we thank you for such great promises and great examples in your word. They are simply a plenty. Give us attention to your word, Lord. Give us discipline in prayer. Help us, Lord, to not bear our burdens, but give them to you. Help us to cast all our anxieties on you, knowing that you care for us. Keep our eyes on you like the most ready and desperate servants would look to their master. Let us believe till you have mercy. Let us believe you will have mercy, but it's in your timing. It's in your way, but you know better than us. Help us to continue to behold the wondrous mystery of Christ in his coming and make us bold to talk about it with others in this world. Help us, Lord, to lovingly, courageously, and freely hold out mercy to a desperate and dry world that needs mercy. Use us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.